Hey everybody, my name is Andrew Neighbor. As Carol said, I am the student ministry director here at Fellowship Asheville, and I just want to say no matter who you are or where you are, we're glad you're here. And um, as she said, this morning we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13, and this is, I think, a really interesting chapter as we look at it and as we talk about it, because last week when we talked about Nehemiah chapter 12, that really sort of made all the sense in the world to be the end of the book. And looking at it, we see that it, it's not the end of the book. There, there's, there's more that happens. Because in Nehemiah chapter 12, we saw uh, the temple was finished, you know, Ezra finished building the temple. Nehemiah finished building the wall. There was a party. There was this celebration. There was so much uh, going on. And it was, you know... Uh, it's kind of like in Return of the Jedi when they have the big party scene and everyone's celebrating. It makes sense as a natural conclusion to what we're looking at and what we're talking about. But that's not the end of the book. And I want to talk a little bit about why. Because the Bible is not so it's the Bible is not Star Wars. The Bible is not some fantasy novel or movie or fairy tale. This is a real collection of, of events and things that really happened. This, this is a historical um, account of what happened to the people of Israel. And things don't always go the way, you know, we think they should or the way that we want them to. It's not, you know, the ending isn't like a Hallmark movie where everything gets wrapped up in a neat little bow. It, it's, it's more complicated than that. And Today, we're going to sort of look at that and dive into some of that complication because Nehemiah is actually, on, on the timeline of like the entire Old Testament, Nehemiah and Malachi are the very last thing we hear before we get 400 years of silence before we see John the Baptist and Jesus. So, with all that said, let's dive in with Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, I want to provide some context here, because when it says on that day, it's, the Hebrew actually is interesting, because it doesn't specifically mean literally that exact day of the celebration they did this. It was sometime around then. All, all actually, all of the descriptions of time in this chapter are actually a, a, a little bit fuzzy and somewhat vague, uh, but here we see that they were reading from the book of Moses, which is something they would often do at these celebrations, at these things. They bring out the Torah. They, they look at the law. And, and here they see that the law says that the Israelites or, or Judeans, I'm going to use those terms uh, interchangeably throughout this. Um, they, are, they are both. It gets, it's the, you know, the kingdom of Judah is essentially what was left when they went into captivity. So that's the more historically accurate term. But we know them as the Israelites throughout all of this. So, 
they were hearing the word, right? And they heard that the Ammonites and the Moabites um, were to be separate. And hearing this, it, it can be reasonable almost to hear it and think, wait a minute, is, is the Bible saying like we should have segregation? Is, is the Bible saying like the people of God shouldn't, or that you know, the Israelites shouldn't live with other people? No, what it's saying is their faith, uh, and because and, if you look at the reason why they, they opposed, um, or why this was to be, it's because they didn't meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. This is about faith, not about race. Uh, it's why we see Ruth, who is a Moabite, is welcomed in with open arms, because it's about faith. And this, this point also, we're going to see this is true throughout this chapter as well. So let's, let's keep reading in Nehemiah. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously offering. The frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. So, do you guys remember Tobiah from, you know, he's been sort of one of the main two bad guys that have been uh, opposing Israel and, and the process of rebuilding the wall and the temple throughout this, right? We see here is Tobiah living inside the temple, the temple that, you know, Ezra spent all this time and effort rebuilding and, and organizing that effort, and here's Tobiah living in the storeroom. And not just in any storeroom, he's, he's living in the place where the tithes and offerings that are supposed to support the Levites, the priests, the singers, the musicians, the gatekeepers, all the people responsible for doing the work of God, the work that really doesn't generate a sustainable income, where they need the people's tithes to sort of provide for them, in that room where those tithes and offerings are supposed to go, that's where Tobiah is living. This is a problem. And, and looking at this and seeing this, we, we tend to think, okay, or at least my first thought when looking at this was, where's, ne- where's Nehemiah? How could he let this happen? Like, what's going on? Let's, let's keep reading. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God uh, with the grain offerings and the incense. So, um, Nehemiah wasn't here. He had been called away to serve King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. You know, because that was his part of his role, that he, he was someone who was in the court of King Artaxerxes, and, and he asked permission to come to 
Israel to help rebuild the walls. And so now, you know, he has to go back. And when it says sometime later, it's, it's a pretty vague amount of time. It doesn't say, like, specifically, but most scholars agree that it's around two years. So Nehemiah's gone for two years, and then he comes back, and what does he find? He finds Tobiah living in the storeroom inside the temple. And I think it's funny here that he doesn't actually um, confront Eliashib or Tobiah immediately. No, he goes right to the room and just starts throwing out Tobiah's stuff. Like, he, he's just like, no, none of this belongs here. I'm getting rid of it. I'm, I'm or, you know, I'm going to have priests purify this room. This isn't, you're not supposed to be here. And, and he does that. And so um, there's, there's other things we see that are implications of Tobiah living in the storm as well that we are going to see next. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. So, if Tobiah was able to live in the storeroom, that meant that the people weren't tithing. And if the people weren't tithing, that meant the Levites, the singers, the musicians, the gatekeepers, uh, the priests, they didn't have what they need to sustain themselves, so they all left and went back to their fields. And I'm going to call them the Levites and friends because repeating Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, and singers every time is a bit, it's a bit of a mouthful. So the Levites and friends, they all went back to their fields to work and, and farm and, and get food because they didn't have anything to sustain themselves. But I think the order of how Nehemiah fixes this is, is pretty cool because the first thing he does is he confronts the officials and says, why is the house of God forsaken? Like, what, why aren't you tithing? Why have you left all this to, to go to waste? Like, all the, the, the Levites and friends, they, they can't do their job because you're not doing yours. Why, why have you abandoned, you know, the house of God is, is the temple and forsaken sort of means abandoned to leave alone, to sort of forget about. So why have you forgotten about the house of God. It, it's, it's this really pointed question. I think what we're going to see here in this chapter is a lot of Nehemiah asking very pointed questions. So he, um, he asks that, and then, then what does he do? He, he then goes and gets the Levites and friends. He gets the, the singers, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the priests, and everyone. He gathers, he goes to their fields, gets them, and brings them back. And he does that before the people start tithing again. So that is, think, think about that, right? Because that requires faith. It requires faith on Nehemiah's part that the people will begin tithing again. And then it requires faith on the Levites and friends who then put their faith in Nehemiah and in God that when they go back, they will be provided for. They will have grain and wine and olive oil and, and, and the things that they need to do the work of God. Um, all those things will be there. And, and so I think 
it's important here when God calls us to do something. Uh, you know, faith first is, I think, a, a solid uh, principle. And, and, you know, the fact that every, they do those things first, and then the tithes and offerings show up. Um, y'all, I'll be honest, uh, in my life, I've, I've seen this recently, um, I felt called to go on our mission trip originally to Haiti. Now we're going to the Dominican Republic, and I was like, I don't necessarily know how I'm going to pay for that. But, um, y'all, God provides, and he's provided a way for me to be able to go to the Dominican Republic. And so, I don't know, this is sort of, we see faith in action, not just with Nehemiah, but also with the Levites and friends. So, let's keep going. And I appointed treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And this is important, because Eliashib was clearly not reliable. He let Tobiah live in the storeroom, and I imagine when the people stopped tithing, they probably, you know, I feel like they weren't up to necessarily good things. So here, Nehemiah, make sure he puts people he knows are reliable and that he can trust in charge of distributing the tithes and offerings. And so I think that's an important, like, leadership lesson, too, is, is make sure you have trustworthy people in your life and make sure you have people who you can trust, who, you know, you put in charge of different things. I think that's a, that's a pretty valid um, principle we can take. I'm going to keep reading. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of, of, of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. These are some pretty serious words we see here from Nehemiah. He, he's confronting the people who are conducting business on the Sabbath. I, um, one thing here, Nehemiah is writing this in the first person, so this is almost like his, his personal journal, right? So we see what he cares about by which details he includes in this. And so I, I think we see that he, he just sort of, he watches at first. He sees them, it's like, okay, they're, they're treading wine presses, they're, they're, they're clearly working on the Sabbath, they're also trading, they're also, uh, you know, it's like the Sabbath doesn't exist to them. And um, one thing in the text, I love when the Bible uses exclamation points, I feel like that's such a, a thing of like, yes, emotion, because so often when we look at the Bible, we, we tend to almost think of it as this 
dry thing that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago, how much, you know, what, and, you know, I know for me, like, one of my favorite things is sort of looking at that, seeing the emotion, and trying to bring that to life. That's one of the reasons why, um, I don't know, I love, uh, I'm the student ministry director here, and I love my job and being able to do that with our students. It's so fun. And so here, in Nehemiah 13, we see an exclamation point, and we see when Nehemiah's talking about all this, the thing that gets him, like, that moves him is the fact that the people, the Tyrians, who lived in the city, brought in fish, all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. They came into the walls and were just selling everything on the Sabbath. And you see sort of the way this sort of stirs Nehemiah up because he confronts the nobles of Judah and says, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Do you want to get more wrath? Because this is how we get more wrath. Like, what are you doing? It's this very sort of animated, or at least I feel like it's very animated, where he's just like, this is so wrong. And my question looking at it is, is like, okay, why is Nehemiah so upset about the Sabbath? And, and then I'm thinking, and I remember, well, one of the Ten Commandments, right, is remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. But what, what does that mean? Well, holy means to be set apart. It means to sort of, we're over here, everything's normal, but this thing is special, and it goes over here. And so the Sabbath is supposed to be this day that is set apart for God. And, you know, Tobiah, when he was living in the temple, he defiled a holy space. And now the Israelites, they're defiling a holy time by, by not keeping the Sabbath separate, by not keeping it apart, they are forgetting about God. Nehemiah continues in verse 18. He says, As it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on that Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So here we see Nehemiah sort of sees what's going on. He talks to the nobles, um, and then he talks to the traders. And, and I want to be uh, clear here, because you see Nehemiah is threatening violence against these dudes. He says, I will lay hands on you. Like, he's, he's really, like, getting after it. And, and my question is, 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 you know, I see why. Like, why is he this upset about it? And um, I've kind of avoided using the word angry throughout this message up until this point because I, I think you got to be careful with, with anger, particularly righteous anger, because I, I think that is what this is. But um, 
Nehemiah is not out here to cancel anybody. He's not out here to, to punish or be vindictive or, or be, like, punitive. Nehemiah's goal with all of this is to restore the nation of Israel to God, to, to bring them back to serving the Lord. And so why does he threaten to lay hands on these traitors who think, okay, all right, gates are closed, that's cool, we'll just camp here. Um, it's because they represent temptation. They represent uh, just the opportunity for Israel to continue to fail, to continue to follow after what they want rather than what God wants for them. And so Nehemiah's like, I'm not having it. Once or twice, no, you're, you're not, you're not going to be there. And so he, he does that and he talks to them. So I want to, um, I also want to compare Nehemiah's threats of violence here and his passion and his zeal to when Jesus uh, flipped over tables in, in the temple, right? Because in there, what's, what's Jesus doing in that moment? Jesus is kicking out uh, money changers. He, he's, again, kicking out people who have defiled the temple. They, they've taken what is supposed to be a house of worship and tor- turned it into a den of thieves. And, and that's bad. And Jesus really didn't like that. And so he goes in. And he, he drives them out. He grabs a whip. And he's like, no, get out of here. And, and I think Jesus' is, is passion, his zeal there, and Nehemiah's uh, emotions here, I think they're deeply linked. I think it's the same thing. Especially because when you look at what the disciples' reactions in that moment when Jesus was doing that, uh, their reaction was to remember, um, I think it's Psalm like 69, where, where they're like, the house of his zeal, the zeal for the house of the Lord will consume me, uh, is, is the verse that, that the disciples think of when they see Jesus in that moment. So they're like, oh, oh, he is zealous. He is filled with zeal for, for the house of the Lord, for, for the place where we worship God, for this holy and reverent place. And I think, and I think that, and Nehemiah's emotions here are deeply connected. So, and then I want to focus a little bit on the last little verse he says there, when he says, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to your greatness and steadfast love. Um, this, is, this is the second time in this chapter we see him say that. I actually accidentally skipped over the first time. Sorry about that. But um, in that, he says, uh, it, it's, it's kind of weird to me, where he's just like, God, please make what I'm doing here last. He, I think he's praying that, um, God, I'm not going to be here forever. I, I can make these reforms, but, but God, it's on you to, to keep your people uh, close to you. And I think he, he points that out here and then again later on. So um, let's, let's continue. In those days... I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Think about that. They had married uh, foreign women, who, and, and they weren't teaching their kids Hebrew. 
Do you know, like, does anybody know how the kids would, would learn Hebrew, what they would do to learn? Someone just want to shout it out? I do a lot of interactive teaching with our students, and I, I, like, I like getting feedback. Like, what were they doing? What's that? Yeah, they memorized the Pentateuch. They memorized the Torah and the Tanakh. They literally, like, the way they learn Hebrew is by learning the law. That means if they don't know Hebrew, they don't even know what the law is. They don't know any of their heritage. They don't know the law. They don't know the stories of God. This is a really big deal. And so Nehemiah confronts them. Verse uh, 25 says this, And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I'm going I'm to pause here because he beats them, curses them, and pulls out their hair. He plucks their beard. And um, the first time I read this, the first time I was looking at this, I was like, wait, Nehemiah did what? He, he plucks out their beard? <laughs> that, that seems weird. And, and so um, I looked at it. And essentially, this is a type of public shaming. What Nehemiah is doing here is he is making sure everyone sort of knows that they've messed up. And it's a very public punishment. And I want to I pause there on that because, like, you know, just with what we know in our context, what we think, like, Shame is not something you want to heap on someone. Shame isn't a way to really impact positive change. But I want, I want to pause here for a second because anything, any punishment that these men endured, um, Jesus, when he went to the cross, he endured further. Because um, think about it, right? Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was cursed. He was told um, when, you know, when he was... Uh, up on the cross, or when he was getting beaten, it was like, hey, if you're God, you can, why don't you stop? Why don't you come on down from there? If you're, if, you know, if you're this great God, what are you doing? Um, that's what people said to Jesus. And now I couldn't find a specific, like, Bible verse where it said, and then the people plucked out Jesus's beard, but I think it was well known, sort of, that for Jews, for, for that culture, like, your beard was your manhood, and they wanted to embarrass Jesus. So I think it's, it's entirely likely and, and plausible that um, when they were beating Jesus, they were, they were plucking at his beard. They were doing everything they could to get at him. And um, y'all, in, in this, like, so often when we feel like we have to carry weight and, and, and guilt and, and shame and, and all of these things, if we've, you know, if we repent and, and, and turn away from our sin, like, Jesus bore our sin. He bore the weight of, of that punishment on him and with him when he went to the cross. We don't have to carry that anymore. Like, that's, Jesus took that. And, and so, um, I hope that's a weight off your shoulders today, because when I think about that, it is a little bit for me. I'm going to keep reading. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, 
You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And now, at this point, what have we seen the people of Israel do this time? We've seen them, uh, we've seen them forget to tithe. We have seen them uh, abandon the Sabbath. We've seen them work straight through it. And now we've seen them marry foreign women. Um, Do you guys remember in Nehemiah chapter 10 when we looked at uh, declarations and and we we made declarations when Fred talked about that, right? What What were the three things that the people declared in Nehemiah chapter 10? They declared that they would tithe, that they would keep the Sabbath, and that they wouldn't marry foreign people, or that they wouldn't marry non-believers. They're 0 for 3. They, they, they struck out. And I know in that moment, like when, when, when Fred talked about Nehemiah chapter 10, we, we, we talked about it, and, and Fred asked the question, like, what are you declaring? And now I don't bring this up, and I don't ask this question to, to, to bring shame or guilt. Again, Jesus took those things, so we don't have to. But, like, how, how are our declarations going? Because I know so often with Scripture and with these stories and with these things, I see myself as Nehemiah. I want to put myself in the hero's shoes. I want to be like, yeah, you get him, Nehemiah. You, you, you tell him who's boss. But if I'm honest with myself and I really look at Scripture— I think I have way more in common with the Israelites than I do with Nehemiah. And that's a, that's a scary place to be. But y'all, there is hope. I am getting there. We are, we are going to see um, hope in this moment and for the Israelites. But I just wanted to, to draw that connection between their declarations in chapter 10 and now, you know, roughly two years later, they've completely abandoned those declarations. And for the Israelites and for the people there, that wasn't even all. That wasn't as deep as it goes. It gets worse. Verse 28 says this, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So, this is, this is sort of complicated. So, I, um, I had Carol sort of make a chart to sort of visualize uh, what this is and these relationships and what they look like. So, Eliashib is, is the high priest. He is the head honcho in charge. He is the one who's in charge of all the Levites and, and all the things, right? And so, Eliashib has a son... His name is Johida, and Johida, I think I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that's his name. And he has a son who we're going to call grandson because Nehemiah doesn't actually name him, and I think that's interesting. Um, and the grandson marries the daughter of Sanballat, 
who's a Horonite, who is a, a foreigner, is an opponent of God. You know, we've seen throughout this that Tobiah and Sanballat, you know, they've been BFFs. They've been best friends forever. And so looking at this, um, with Eliashib's grandson married to uh, the daughter-in-law of, of, the, of one of the enemies of Israel, uh, we can see very easily how Tobiah managed to make his way into living inside the temple courts. Um, it, it's a bit confusing, which is why I think a chart is helpful. Um, and so it, it leads to just this, this defilement of even the royal priesthood. Uh, this, this defilement, this, this desecration, this, this, um, this opposition goes all the way straight to the top. It goes to Eliashib. And, and I love that um, Nehemiah, when he says, uh, I, chased, I chased them away from me. I, I, I chased the grandson and the daughter out. Um, he doesn't tell us their names because they're not going to be heirs to the priesthood. Because that was, that was the big deal with this, was right? We could essentially have a non-believer in charge of the priesthood in Israel. Like, it doesn't get much more off the rails than that. And so Nehemiah sees this, understands this, and he chases them out of Jerusalem. And so, and then uh, what he says is interesting, because before, you know, where he's been like, remember me, God, remember me, uh, have favor on me, look at, you know, please, Make the things that I've done last. Here, that's not what he says. He says, remember them, my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. It's like, remember their sin. I think it, it's, it's an interesting reversal there because it's bad. And, and then we conclude the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah 13, uh, verses 30 and 31 says this. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And that's the end of Nehemiah. That's where it just ends. Uh, so that's all I got. I'll, you know, Fred will start a new series next week. No, just kidding. That's not where we're ending. Can, can you imagine, though? It's, it's, this, it's this cliffhanger. It's this weird, like, when I was looking at this, I was just like, what do I do with this? But for us, this isn't where the story ends. And it isn't really where it ends for them. Yes, this is where... Um, this was the last bit of scripture they had uh, chronologically for 400 years until John the Baptist and, and Jesus showed up. Uh, but the last book of the Bible, when we look at it, is Malachi. And Malachi uh, means messenger. And Malachi was a prophet sent to the Israelites during the two years where Nehemiah was away serving King Artaxerxes. And Malachi... It's, it's a really interesting book because it's just four chapters, but it basically, Malachi shows up and is like, 
hey, Israel, we got some things to talk about. I got some things I need to tell you that uh, the Lord wants me to tell you. And the first thing that Malachi says to them is, hey, guys, I just want you to know God loves you. And, you know, for me, I would think that the Israelites' response to, to hearing God loves you would be one of, of two things, right? It'd be, yes, God loves us. Yes, okay, continue. We're, we're listening. Or, okay, yeah, we know. Come on. Well, what do you really got? They choose neither of those. Instead, they go, how? How does God love us? What has he done for us, huh? That, that's their response to being told, like, what is a foundational truth of the faith? That's how far they've fallen. And if that's their response to God loves you, uh, you can imagine they're not going to be particularly responsive to the rest of what Malachi has to say to them. And so Malachi then continues, and he keeps on pointing out essentially the same sins that Nehemiah did, that, hey, you guys, you're, you're not tithing, you're not keeping the Sabbath, and you're married to non-believers. What are you doing? And what's funny is, is actually each time Malachi says these things, their response is the same obstinate, sort of, sort of annoyed. How? How are we doing those things? Show us our sin. Like they, they almost like they, they don't believe him. They're very, very oppositional in their response. And so Malachi sort of goes through all this, and then the book of Malachi ends with him talking about uh, the coming day of the Lord. And so I'm going to read a little bit from Malachi 4, uh, verses, and I'm going to start at uh, Malachi 4, verse 1, which says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, for, for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Here, Malachi is talking about Jesus. And again, this is the last bit of, this is the last thing the Israelites hear from God for the next 400 years. And, and this, is, this is the end of Malachi. And so he's talking about Jesus. And specifically, when he says, uh, the son of righteousness will come with healing in its wings. Um, wings is actually... Uh, a Hebrew word there that means like the frilly end bits of the prayer shawl. It's a very specific phrasing of Hebrew clothing. And so we see uh, in Luke 8, 43 through 48, that this gets fulfilled. Check this out. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she couldn't be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus 
and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when they all denied her, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So this, I think, is a really cool story because you have this this lady, this woman, who uh, is been bleeding for 12 years and can't stop. Uh, that, that does not sound uh, like an ailment I would want. Uh, that sounds pretty bad. And um, she's tried everything at this point, right? She's, she's gone to doctors. She says she spent all of her money looking for a solution to, to just make this stop. And then, I, y'all, I don't know if the Spirit brought this verse to her mind, when she, said, when she thinks, if I just touch the frilly end of his prayer shawl, if I touch the edge of his garment, then, then, then I'll be healed. Um, but I feel like we, we, could, we could say that, because at the very least, she certainly believed that, and her faith was enough to make that true. And I also, um, Peter's reaction here is just one of my favorite things, right? Because Jesus, you know, they're walking, they're in a crowd, and Jesus just goes, who touched me? And Peter's like, Jesus, you're in a crowd of people. Literally everyone is touching you. <laughs> and, and then Jesus is like, no, no, someone, someone got healed. I, I need to, I want to know who this is. And uh, I just, I think, again, that's just a little bit of a picture of the humanity of the disciples. Like, I think they're the most relatable people in the entire Bible because it's just like, they're just fishermen. Sure, they're, they're Jews, but they're just... You know, a couple are fishermen, Matthew's a tax collector, like, they all have different jobs, and um, I don't have this in here, this is an aside, but, like, um, y'all have been watching a little bit of The Chosen, and I think that is a really good show that, that brings out the, the humanity of the disciples, so that's something that I'd recommend. Um, so, this woman, once she sees that she's not hidden, she, she falls down at her face, and then she explains, she proclaims, like, I just, I just needed some healing because I've, I've been bleeding for 12 years and I need to make it stop. And then um, Jesus does not shame her because at this point I feel like she's pretty worried, right? Because if she's, I mean, the people in that time probably didn't want to be around someone who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And so I think she's probably pretty used to to hiding or trying to sort of be, be very, like, make herself small so she doesn't get seen. But in this moment, Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her need, um, sees her faith that Jesus can meet her need, and then Jesus heals her. And, and he, he speaks to her and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The Son of Righteousness will have healing in his wings. And so, as we wrap up here, I want to I wanna sort of bring it back to this, this neat little, deeply ironic, pretty yellow bow that I have. Um, because while the Bible is, is a real story, all this really happened, and so often things don't get wrapped up into neat little bows, 
Um, Jesus is our healer. He is our provider. He is um, the one that we can put our faith and trust in. And as we've looked at, you know, throughout this entire series, we've seen the um, Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and we've talked about rebuilding, right? Like rebuilding after everything that's happened. And it sort of ends with it all kind of falling apart. But that's not the end. The end is, is it ultimately pointing to Jesus. Um, y'all, over the past two years, I've actually spent a fair bit of time looking at the Old Testament. And um, every single book of the Old Testament points to either Jesus or our need for Jesus. And Ezra and Nehemiah is no different. We see the Israelites. We see their struggle. We see them in their place. And we see that they ultimately, they need Jesus. They had to wait another 400 years. But y'all, we, we, we don't. Jesus was a real person who really lived, who really died on the cross and, and took our sin. And if we uh, believe in him, if we put our faith and trust in him, if we turn away from our sin and say yes to Jesus, then we can have uh, that freedom. And y'all, so my question here today is, is where do we need to trust Jesus to tie our bows? Do, do we have any bows um, that we need Jesus to tie? Because y'all, uh, I'm terrible at tying things. If, if things were left up to me, there'd just be nothing but loose ends everywhere. Like knots, ropes, all of it. Like I, I'm not, it, it's not my thing. Um, and I had to learn that. Um, I actually before I worked here, I did a job where I was learning to be an arborist, which involves climbing trees, and to do that, you need to learn how to tie knots. That was the, literally the one thing I just, I couldn't figure out how to make my hands do the thing that they were supposed to do. It just, it didn't work. Um, but the, good, the great thing about this is we don't have to. Like, Jesus is our healer. Uh, Jesus is the one that we can trust in. So, y'all, as we, um, as we go, I'm going to close this in prayer. And, and I want, really, my challenge is how can we point others towards Jesus? Because, y'all, rebuilding is really, really stinking hard. And we need Jesus to do it. So, uh, I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for loving us and, and sending your only son, Jesus, to die for us. And God, I pray that um, as, as we are here watching either in person or online or later in the week listening to the podcast, wherever we are, God, that you would meet us there. God, I, I pray that you would, um, you would comfort us. You would be our comfort. God, if, if we have anything in our life that just isn't working out or is causing us stress or anxiety or all these different things, God, I just pray that we would, we would hand that over to you, that we would trust you with that today. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.